0: A university can spend easily $40,000 on a speaker to come in and talk. For that same $40,000, they could probably have a coaching program for 50 students. Every one of those students would be positively affected by that. Whereas two days after the speaker leaves, there's not much left there.
1: Thrive Friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. Can soft skills like leadership development be measured, and can they be evidence-based practice? Today, I'm joined by a special guest, and I truly mean it, who will help us answer this question. A retired Brigadier General, Tom Kulditz, led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for almost 12 years. He also served for two years as a leadership and HR policy analyst in the Pentagon. He's a fellow in the American Psychological Association and a member of the Academy of Management. He's also the founding director of the Doerr Institute for New Leaders at Rice University, which has been recognized in 2019 as, quote, the top university leader development program, quote, by the Association of Leadership Educators. General Tom Kalditz, welcome on thrive.
0: Thank you, Dr. Solomon.
1: Thank you for joining me today. One of the best leadership courses I had was with a retired general. You know George W. Casey Jr., who was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army 2007-2011, and it was about the leadership in VUCA world.
0: You know, I do know him. Uh, I was a serving colonel when he was our chief of staff. Uh, He was very well known. Uh, he had incredible experience in uh, not just the U.S., uh, but also in the Middle East, uh, as you know. And uh, he knows a lot about volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous situations. And so I'm sure that it was a productive discussion that you had with him.
1: It was truly amazing, course. And let's start now with the title of your latest book, Leadership Reckoning. The title really caught my eyes, and I'm curious, what is a reckoning in leadership?
0: So Leadership Reckoning came about when we began to study how universities, colleges and universities, develop their students as leaders. Mm -hmm. And we did a year-long study. I had a full-time researcher on it. And we were really shocked to discover, first, how many universities uh, said that they developed their students as leaders for business, for society, for the social sector. And then how few of them followed through on that promise in any kind of coherent, organized fashion, uh, we found it to be fundamentally untrue. Uh, And so in building our programming at Rice, we wanted to demonstrate that one can have a university-wide leader development effort that's evidence-based and has measurable outcomes. And then then we wanted to spread that idea so that universities would self-examine. Mm -hmm. That's what the leadership reckoning is. It's a movement towards having colleges and universities look at themselves and decide, are we really producing better leaders or are we simply entertaining our students and educating them, which in and of itself is a large challenge.
1: Indeed. So you are essentially proposing a movement. And I'm curious, what are the key elements of this movement?
0: Well, the first and most fundamental element of the movement is the recognition that universities have an obligation to society to develop their students as leaders, not to merely educate them. That the the output from universities should include people who are better at leading than when they got to the university. And what our research has shown is that that's not true, that most university graduates have the same level of leadership capacity as they had when they were seniors in high school. So our system is literally graduating college educated people with high school level leadership skills and putting them into industry or government or elsewhere where we we need quality leadership. So it's a a systemic and strategic failure and it can only be resolved by the universities themselves.
1: Mm And what was the response when you approached universities with this new movement and with the new key elements that you are proposing?
0: Yeah, so almost everyone we approach with this and explain it to them, they sort of slap their forehead with their palm and they say, you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, we have no centralized, organized way of determining if we're graduating leaders or not. And there's always... You know, the small boutique programs may be scattered about in the engineering schools or the business schools or what have you. But uh, those don't really develop enough individuals for it to matter to our society in the same way. It's just started in those schools because they're pragmatic. They're practical schools, engineering, uh, business applications, and so forth. But we found at Rice that virtually every student who receives... High-quality leader development benefits from it, whether they're students in architecture or engineering or they're a cellist in the music school. It really doesn't matter. Their lives improve and they're more effective as people when they get high-quality leader development.
1: I wonder, how can leadership development be measured, if it can be measured? And what do you mean by evidence-based leadership that will lead to something that is quantifiable and measurable?
0: Yes. So uh, let me let me speak to the issue of evidence-based first. Mm -hmm. Uh, That term is used by uh, experts and charlatans alike uh, to sell all sorts of activities. And what we mean by it, what we mean by evidence-based, is that the strategies that we use have been successful or apparently successful elsewhere. Okay. It doesn't mean that they're theory-based. Okay. It doesn't mean that they're based on academic research even, but they've been successful before. But that's not enough for us because, as you mentioned, we measure outcomes on the back end. There are two kinds of, fundamentally, two kinds of outcomes that a person can measure. You can measure process, which is how many students sought out the training, were they happy with the training, uh, that sort of thing. Or you can measure outcomes. And most universities measure some sort of process, but they never really measure outcomes. And the outcomes are changes in the individual that one would predict given the training intervention or the development intervention measured by valid means. And so we have an independent research psychologist on our team who does nothing but measure outcomes independently and objectively. So he is not responsible for the success of programs. He only measures them. And we measure in three separate dimensions. Behavioral skills and abilities, what are sometimes called competencies in the leadership field. And those are easy to measure because skills are always observable. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we measure emotionally. So we give an emotional intelligence scale to our students as a pretest and then if we want to go back and measure change in emotional intelligence we give them a post test and then lastly we measure it cognitively so we have a, a validated instrument in a concept called leader identity mm-hmm. and that that that's what it sounds like you know does the person have an identity of a leader do they think of themselves as a leader do they are they confident in their skills as a leader do they intend to lead in the future mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> you'll notice that I talked about behavioral measures, emotional measures, and cognitive measures. Mm-hmm. I didn't specifically say we were measuring leadership. And that's yeah. where people get into trouble or, or have a problem because there are probably a thousand definitions for leadership.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's it's really very hard to measure a construct that that that's that nebulous. But what we do know is that there are certain characteristics and behaviors and beliefs that are held by people who are leaders, Mm -hmm. who are leading in business, society, government, and so forth. Those qualities can be measured by psychologists or really anyone who's willing to use valid psychological measures. So for example, we would measure leader identity, we would measure sense of purpose, we would measure life satisfaction, And all of those things are associated with people who are successful leaders. And so when we give a training intervention and we measure those things and we see positive change, we've measured how the individual was developed. We've measured that person's development. Now, arguably, we haven't measured leadership, but leadership really isn't relevant to a human being. It's their beliefs, cognitions, behaviors, emotions that are relevant. And so the, the measurement focus has to be on the things that we know a lot about, which are psychological variables, and we use validated psychological instruments to pursue that in a pretest test post-test. And then for the, for the research buffs that are out there, the other thing that we do that's very important is that we use a time series design in our measurement. So we have a large segment of the student body that volunteers or, or applies for the, for the leadership training, and we delay a portion of them mm-hmm. so that we control for self-selection bias into the programming. And by doing that, we know that what the changes that we're measuring are caused by, not just correlated with, but caused by our training, and that there isn't a bias just because people have sought out uh, this sort of development.
1: Mm-hmm. So the measures you are using are based on both academically validated scales in psychology, which doesn't surprise me, you are a PhD in psychology, and also empirical evidence based on what worked with others in the past. Correct. Yeah. And let's take a step back. You talked about measurement, and you talked about how you, we can assess whether someone has the capacity to be a leader or whether they have done a good job as a leader. But we didn't talk about teaching leadership before we assess it. And I noticed that you do not teach classes per se. I wonder whether you think there is a place for classes on leadership.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, leadership is taught as a class, as a topic in organization behavior, organizational psychology, and Mm -hmm. so forth. And it's a terrific field to study. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you can learn a lot. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between gaining knowledge about leadership and being developed as a leader so that you can practice it.
1: Exactly. And
0: so courses that are taught in leadership have to really have both those aims if they want to say that the course made better leaders. So the usual measurement that's done on a leadership course is a course evaluation. Mm -hmm. And that usually has to do with learning objectives, whether it's learning about leadership theory or leadership history or leadership practices. Um, But there is little correlation between simply having knowledge about leadership and being developed as a leader. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it can't be done in a class. It's that the professor has to, first of all, know how to build in strategies that cause the exercise of certain cognitions or behaviors or or what have you, and then measure that separately from measuring the success of the class in a traditional way. We love people who teach leadership classes. We think it's great. Our mission at Rice is to develop Rice students as leaders. So we have to use the most efficient means of doing that And classroom instruction is relatively expensive compared to the developmental strategies that we use at Rice and that we offer to the entire student body at Rice.
1: I'm very glad that you mentioned that these courses are expensive. And that leads me to ask you the question, what if there are no funds available for leadership development in a university or a business institute?
0: You know, I've been uh, around higher education at a relatively senior level for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to understand is that when someone tells you there's no money for what you want to do, that is a statement of your priority. It's not a statement about how much money is available in that institution. Uh, Secondly, um, we offer executive quality leader development programming, 17 different opportunities to every student at Rice University who wants it free of charge. Now, first, we only get a take rate of about 35 to 40% of the student body in all seven schools. That's still a very high percentage, yeah. but it's far from 100%. Uh, but what we do, we've analyzed the circumstances, and it costs less than half of what classroom instruction costs. Mm-hmm. So if, if, a, if a person's proposing doing something that costs half of what you're already doing, Mm -hmm. That means it's simply a choice. And what the leadership reckoning is about is asking universities to make that choice deliberately. Either choose to do it in in a way that's equivalent to the excellence that universities provide in their classroom instruction, or take it out of your mission statement and admit that you're not doing it. But I think most of our universities feel a very strong obligation uh, to their students and other stakeholders and society to produce better leaders. And so, it's, it's really not a matter of money at all. It's a matter of priority, and it's a matter of choice. And, uh, you know, we can, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, every semester, we coach more than 400 Rice students using only professional and certified coaches from the Houston business community. Mm-hmm. And we run that program for less money than one senior faculty salary plus fringe. Mm. Just let that sink in for a second. So if a university says they, they can't do this in a, in a deliberate way, they're talking about a very small handful of faculty equivalents in the budget. Uh, now, here's part of the challenge is that in industry, mm-hmm. they'll pay almost anything. And yes. so there's this perception that leader development is very, very expensive and, you know, only for relatively high performing individuals, you know, the old uh, great man theory from the 1950s. And, uh, and, and so there's this perception that it's way too costly. But, you know, we, it's ironic that we were given a, a, a donation, an endowment to start the, the Door Institute And it took that generous endowment for us to prove how inexpensive this can be. It's well within the capabilities of any normally functioning university, well within.
1: This triggers my curiosity. How did you make it so affordable? Do you think it's a Texas factor?
0: Partly. Uh Partly. Uh, We we are benefited not so much by, by it being Texas, but Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. There are 5.2 million people here. Uh, Harris County, Texas has the same GDP as New Zealand. So it's an incredibly rich business environment. And it's easy to find coaches who are highly qualified, who are hungry for more work. And so we offer them maybe a third to a fifth of what they would get paid by executives. Hmm. But we offer them more clients. So we have many coaches who coach 10 clients a semester. And so they can use that to build a base on their income. And then because they're vendors, because we don't hire them full time, they can take on other work with executives or anyone else. And it makes for a, a much more successful coaching career for the people who work with us to have the large numbers of students and at the same time be able to take on high paying executive clients as well.
1: This is truly encouraging for other universities to prioritize leadership development as you mentioned it is a matter of priority.
0: It is and we we actually did an experiment with one of the major coaching companies mm-hmm. and asked them to provide us uh, 30 coaches to coach for us at another university via distance and to do it at an affordable cost for universities, not at executive rates. And that that coaching company uh, found coaches willing to do that. They delivered the coaching um, to a, a group of 100 students at another university, and we measured the outcomes, and they got terrific effects. And so not only can we do this at Rice, but literally a university could pick up the phone and get a coaching company to create a similar type program, at least in coaching. Now we do much more than coaching alone at Rice, mm-hmm. but that's usually what's viewed as the really pricey program that people are afraid of. And in fact, it's it's not pricey at all. And it's far better in terms of leader development than mentoring. Mentoring is good for career development. Uh, it's good for uh, supporting people emotionally. It's It's terrible as a leader development tool. Uh, if, and, you know, if you draw a distinction between career development and leader development, a lot of what happens at universities now, especially in the engineering schools Mm -hmm. tends to fall by the wayside because it's so much focus on engineering as a profession Mm -hmm. that a lot of the broader leadership principles get left behind.
1: I couldn't agree more. And this can extend to other. Professional schools. I wouldn't say that medical school is uh, in any less problem than engineering. There is a big gap needed to be filled for leadership development. Tom, you have been in leadership development for so many years, both in academia and in the army. And I'm curious, what have you observed as the most effective strategies for leadership development?
0: Hands down, the most effective strategy is for trained people to work with those being developed in the context of what they're already passionate about or their work. Mm-hmm. So we see this movement in industry moving away from the large corporate universities and having professional coaches work with executives in their roles. Mm-hmm. In, in university settings, like at Rice, mm-hmm. our coaches work with students in the context of their passions and their interpersonal interaction. So an engineering student is coached in the context of their uh, project team, engineering project team. A Mm -hmm. cellist would be coached in the context of the quartet or the orchestra. Uh, Architects are coached in the context of their design teams. So this is not just the best way to develop leaders in universities. It's it's a trend. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I discovered this at West Point Uh, West Point has a group of people called tactical officers. They are young army officers who don't teach classes, but they help train the cadets to run operations like land navigation courses or the cadet laundry or uh, uh, rifle ranges and what have you. That's where the real leader development happens in at West Point or at at most uh, military universities. So it's, it's getting a trained individual, not a mentor, not a general faculty member, but someone that knows about leadership and leader development to coach and and work with people that are interacting in an interpersonal environment. That is hands down the biggest effects that we get from all of our programming. We also get good effects from multi-session workshops that have application in a two-week period in between the workshops. Because it's this applied learning that creates the right skills, the right cognitions, and so forth. What are some of the things that we have not found to work very well? Speakers. You know, many universities have these speaker series where people come in and talk about leadership. We can't find any evidence that it does anything. Um, You know, there are other things. uh, The the small seminars uh, that have no applied aspect to them. They're very interesting. People love them. They don't work. Um, They don't don't change the way a a person can lead. Um, They're great for knowledge. They're great for inspiration, as are the speakers. Very inspiring. But that has a half-life of about 48 hours, and then it's gone. And we're measuring our effects, in some cases now, three years after they go through the training, and it's still there. And you know, a university can spend easily $40,000 on a speaker to come Mm -hmm. in and talk. For that same $40,000, they could probably have a coaching program for 50 students. Every one of those students would be positively affected by that. Whereas two days after the speaker leaves, there's not much left there.
1: Indeed. And that resonates well with the common sense. Knowledge is experience. Everything else is information. So without experiential learning, these lessons will evaporate in not 48 hours, maybe four hours.
0: Exactly. And, you know, this is not deep science here. Some of this is intuitively almost obvious, but there's been such a a tradition and a uh, almost a superstition around certain kinds of activities, thinking that they develop people as leaders. You know, some of the ropes courses and the things that involve temporary teams being formed, not real lab teams, but but you know things that where, where separate individuals come together and they work on team building. that does nothing. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the exercise related programs, they're a good exercise. Uh, it's great to be a sailor or a crew on a crew team, but do they create lasting effects in terms of leadership? No, they do not.
1: Mm-hmm. Our audience listening to this conversation, if you are interested in learning more about Tom's effective strategies for leadership development, the links will be posted in the YouTube description below, including also links to his social media. This is a question I ask anyone on Thrive. We all had setbacks, all of us, and we managed to move from striving to thriving. Would you mind sharing one of yours and how you handled it?
0: Yeah. So my first book, which came out in 2007, was a book on crisis leadership mm-hmm. called In Extremis Leadership, leading as if your life depended on it. And so I did a lot of teaching and speaking around crisis leadership. And it really didn't hit home for me until I had a personal crisis uh, in our family. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who was in all respects, very healthy and, and athletic and in good shape all of a sudden went into heart failure and was in heart failure for eight years until she was put on a transplant list and received a transplant, a heart transplant. And I found that I used all of the principles that I had taught to soldiers and mountain climbing guides and everyone else about leading in danger or leading in crisis, that I used it with my own family, with my my wife who was horrified by all this and my daughter and her sister and um, it, all, it all has a very happy ending. My daughter's uh, had her new heart for uh, more than five years. She's a mother of two. She's leading a normal life. And I, I hope and pray that she will for another 30 years. But um, that was a crucible event for me. That was very hard because you know I was a senior officer in the Army. I fix things. I control things. And this I could neither fix nor control. So all I could do was manage it and give a lot of love to my whole family, but at the same time, focus them in ways that I only knew how to do that because I'd studied crisis leadership for so long.
1: And how was the family response to your crisis leadership application? Did they feel it fit a family dynamic or it's only for army family dynamic or army dynamic?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, they probably don't even know that I was using these self-same principles, but mm-hmm. things like focusing them, uh, task focus, when people were beginning to get emotional, I would, I would inst- instead of trying to control their emotions, I would task focus them so they would be in their prefrontal cortex as opposed to their amygdala. You know, I would get them centered again. Uh, I would always, always be optimistic and hopeful with them, even when I personally had lost some of my optimism or my hope. And so they, if you ask my wife right now, she would probably not even realize that I was doing what I'd written about in that book. Um, But we got through it. We got through it very well as a family. Uh, We were very, very fortunate um, because many die waiting for hearts. My daughter was on the list almost 365 days and was in cardiac ICU for 46 days. So she was very close to death when she finally got her heart. Um, And even after that, of course, for a year or two, we were still very concerned and focused on her and so forth. And now she lives in Colorado and hikes in the mountains with her kids. So I guess all's well that ends well. But for me, that taught me a lot about what people need when they're deeply afraid.
1: Indeed. And could you explain to the audience what is task focus?
0: Yeah, so the way it works is that when you are intently focused on a task, um, it's very difficult to feel any emotions. Uh, And everyone's experienced that through various kinds of concentration. And the example that I like to use is that if people were in in a car accident, they immediately performed a number of tasks. They safely got out of the car, they helped other people, there were injured people, they, they helped work with them, perhaps they got a triangle out, they called the police or the ambulance, and they were able to perform those tasks. But then when they sit by the side of the road, they begin to get emotional and they begin to shake. And that's because they lost their task focus, and now they're just feeling emotions and they they were always going to feel those emotions but they didn't feel them because they were task focused at first and so that's how i always taught uh, cadets young soldiers to deal with combat if you're feeling afraid or you're feeling angry you are not focused enough so i wouldn't tell them to control their emotions And I was a parachute instructor for more than 25 years, and when I would take a tandem passenger and put them in the door of the aircraft, I had told them before that I wanted them to look at the wingtip and count the rivets on the wingtip, and I would put them in the door, and I would tip their head up and point at the wingtip, and then within a second, we'd be out the door, but it was enough time, enough focus by them that they weren't looking down and, and being afraid. They were focusing on a task, so This is how professionals who operate in dangerous places can control other people's emotions and my own emotions, because I know when I'm angry or when I'm afraid of something that I need to get to work instead of sitting there and feeling those negative emotions.
1: What a story, Tom, and what a pleasure to have you on
0: Thrive. Dr. Solomon, it has just been a pleasure for me. I really do appreciate the invitation.
1: Thank you very much, people watching us. Keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.